Welcome to The Sustainable Life. It's Josh with Mark Mills again. I think this is number four for us, yeah? <laughs> Losing track. We're going to have to get uh, a room, as they say. <laughs> Stop meeting this way. <laughs> Everyone's envious of us now. Well, you know, I really like talking to people where they, they know the science, they've done the numbers, they know what they're talking about. And uh, um, there's, I, I know a lot of people who know the numbers and a lot of people who, who work on the environment. And there's not a lot of overlap of that. <laughs> well, there's a lot of aspiration going on in this uh, domain these days, but that's yeah, that's not so new when you read history. There's, a, there's periods where, where things are going on uh, in the culture and high aspirations of achieving things that are, it turns out, are difficult to achieve. But, you know, it's okay. And I'm sure there are plenty of areas where I'm talking where I have no idea what I'm talking about. I hope this isn't one of them. <laughs> yeah, likewise. <laughs> or rather, I, I, know that the, I know there's a lot that I don't know. And I hope yeah. that I, you know, I, I don't know where my blind spots are, but I know that uh, I know that there's some there and I hope I don't blunder too much. Well, is it, I, mean, is it, I mean, that's one of the big challenges in, in, in science and engineering in general. I mean, the stories of people saying things which engineers prove to be false are, are epic, even though they're episodic. You know, the Lord Kelvin saying that, you know, yeah, the flying, yeah. the flying thing. And then you have, you know, there's a bunch of these over history, which people point to. But they're typically the exceptions. No, normally, when you, you know, the, the claims about something that's really dramatic that hasn't been invented yet are the, sort of the kinds of things we see in history, people like the Kelvin, Lord Kelvin and the flying thing. But once something's invented and we know something about it, I mean, once we have a domain knowledge, we've got an accumulated literature experience, we've built things, it gets a little easier to find reliable data and predictions about what can be done, you know, how much stuff you can dig up, how fast airplanes can fly, how much energy is in oil, you know, these 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 things are all become knowable and aspirations uh, are less relevant. I yeah, I finished, I finished your book and, and you end with, a, uh, I think it was an appendix of, of like forecasting the future and what yeah. some we tend to get wrong in some areas consistently, some we consistently get right in other areas. So maybe yeah. you could share about that because you, you do a lot of prognosticating. Yeah, you know, I, I, I like the subject. In fact, one of my uh, colleagues who was kind enough to review my book told me I shouldn't put that appendix in. I should make that a book mm -hmm. by itself. Don't put, don't put it there. I said, well, you know, I'm going to leave it there because I wrote it and I'll expand it into a book about forecasting later. So the history of forecasting, you know, how we do it and why we do it. And then, you know, try to present an argument for a, a taxonomy, how one could do useful forecasting. And so I used that study, which is summarized in my appendix, as the taxonomy for my book. Because, you you know, forecasting has been around a long time, but the idea of forecasting technology, I mean, forecasting people, you know, soothsayers and entrail readers, that's really ancient stuff. But forecasting technology progress is a relatively new preoccupation because the idea of progress in technology is very new. Most of human history, a great example that some economic historians have used. So most of human history, the technology progress pace is slow. And so forecasting doesn't have much meaning. So a good example was the tools that a mason would have had to build the great cathedrals beginning in the right around 1000 AD would pass those down two generations and still be useful tools. The same tools would still be very, very useful, not just because they're valuable and expensive, because they're the same tools. 150, 200 years later, doing 
you know, they were more more skilled and learned a few more things, and the cathedrals got slightly more sophisticated, but there was not that much difference over a period of 200 years. That's a long time, right? I mean, now if you try to forecast 200 years, like the tools I'm using today, whether it's a computer tool or something to fix a car, you is no, it's going to be mm-hmm. worthless in a decade, maybe. So uh, what I looked at was famous forecasts made a long time ago by people like Bacon and then more re- and Da Vinci, but more recently at things that science fiction writers have done, like Asimov and Heinlein. And then there was the Ladies Home Journal piece, which was very, it makes it made its rounds many times. It's a century old collection of forecasts. And I have, you know, shelves full of books of forecasts, which are really delicious. Um, the most recent collection of forecasts was done by Wired Magazine in its early days of enthusiasms for the Internet, you know, right around 2001 or 2002. And anyway, I collected all those and I tried to create a taxonomy of the forecasts, as you know, like forecasts about population, forecasts about the economy, forecasts about resource availability, resource use, forecasts about how we'll live, entertainment, forecasts about our environment, if you like. So rather than have them random, because most collections are sort of random. This, you know, this was a hit. This was a miss. And as you pointed out, some, some, uh, there's, some, there were some pretty good forecasts made um, by Heinlein and Asimov when, when they weren't infected by the, the whatever the trope of the day was, right? The local time, yeah. The, the local, time. yeah. There was whatever people were most animated about. And Asimov was captivated by the idea that we we're going to run out of oil because he was still alive in the early seventies when the oil embargo happened, and. You know, that was really a category error problem, which he fell prey to because we were running out of oil. That was a political event. The Saudi banned exports to the United States. They weren't running out. We weren't running out. They just had cheaper oil then. We chose not to drill it. They did. And they banned they banned exports to us for political reasons. For people who don't remember their history, it's because President Nixon at the time used American satellites to give intel to Israel to uh, repel the invasion of the joint Arab states to drive Israel into the sea. So the Arab-Israeli War of 73, the Israelis famously won, but they wouldn't have won, almost certainly wouldn't have won, but for the assistance of the United States and give them satellite intel, which nobody else had but us at the time. The Saudis punished the United States by essentially raising oil prices by 400% overnight. That, you know, that's pretty shocking, a 400% increase in oil prices today, which would really shock the world. It shocked everybody. So they all became preoccupied with running out of oil. And Asimov failed at the same rate of the same, the same mistake. So it was interesting to think about taxonomies of time. People predict, uh, over-predict in short term, under-predict in the long term. That is, things that can happen in five years just don't, things don't happen that fast by and large in terms of fundamental change. Things that take 50 years or looking 50 years in the future, you can have some pretty foundational changes happen in technology in 50 years. And then we have the category of, um, uh, what I would call genuinely wishful thinking, which is where we started this, where people have an aspirational goal, something that's in their head about population, usually macro things, about uh, you know running out of resources. The Malthus, Malthusianism is still firmly embedded everywhere in the world, ever since Malthus thought we were going to run out of food and, and fuel. And Malthusians are famously still around, still predicting the same thing. We're going to run out of it, this, we're going to run out of that. And, and Nothing's ever, we've never exhausted anything uh, at, at the fundamental level of the forecasts. So anyhow, the the thing that is fascinating about the, the forecast is not just what we get right or what we get wrong, is that there are forecasters that do pretty well, 
stock market forecasters that famously make a bunch of money in the short term. And there are business forecasters that really get things right. And uh, we, we know who they are because, you know, Warren Buffett is a good example of a person who's often credited with doing a pretty good job in short-term forecasts because he makes a bet on those forecasts in terms of companies he buys. You know, he bought railroads, uh, the railroad uh, Burlington Northern back in, uh, was a decade ago, and everybody said the railroads were going away. We don't need railroads anymore. The stock price was down. He buys a railroad. Turns out, as we're learning in the news today, railroads still matter. They move a lot of goods, and it's very hard to compete with this 200-year-old invention for low-cost, uh, you know, energy-efficient delivery of bulk goods on land. It just mm. They're they're basically the land version of ships. So, so ships aren't going away. People who forecast dirigibles would replace ships were just wrong. And it was it should have been obvious they were wrong when they said it, because there was nothing about the dirigible that could compete en masse with the ship, with all the technology we knew. So anyway, that's why that's there. Uh, it certainly is relevant. And I didn't spend a lot of time in my book, as you know, on energy stuff. Energy stuff is woven through the book. The energy costs of materials, the energy costs of computing, the energy costs of flying and personal air taxis. All those things are really important because they're enabled by energy. But I, I deliberately avoided, uh, it was partly tactic, but partly personal interest, making the book titled or focused on energy because it's an input. Uh, technology innovation is is this isn't centered on energy, even though we that's what everybody's hypertrophied interests are these days. It's never been true uh, in history that the primary focus has been on energy. We need food and fuel, but most of the innovations that have propelled society that made our lives you know more comfortable in the last century haven't been energy innovations. Those are sort of all they're all behind us. So if you, we're getting we get a little better all the time, but those innovations are all are all behind us. We have to discover some new physics to get energy innovation again. You know, ma magical fusion has to be finally conquered and room temperature super superconductivity has to be finally discovered and, and those kinds of things, none of which exist. So, yeah, when I finished your book, you, you did, you would, you consistently alluded to energy and you consistently brought up issues that I thought were critical that a lot of people miss about uh, efficiency tends to increase use, not decrease despite what people expect. And um, and it's that's not like this oddball side effect. It's part of how things work. It's it's, it's exactly right. It's exactly how things work. Yeah, and it's how you should want them to work. I mean, you, you want to avoid poverty. And the way you avoid poverty is reduce inputs, get more productive, so more people can have the good thing, the useful thing. That I mean, that's that'll end when we've we've when the population of the world peaks and we've invented everything possible to do. <laughs> that we might want to do, which I, by the way, I think never happens because yeah, that's uh, <laughs> but that's all different. That's all. Now here's what I was looking for by the end of the book, and I didn't see, and so I wanted to ask you about, and yeah. that's that. Um, at the end, you talked about climate, yeah, and then you pointed out, well, we're not really sure about that, but this, the you cited Steve Coonan, and I read his book, and I I found valid criticism in, in there, but mm -hmm. at most, I would say they were limited. There's a lot of other issues that come. Even if we say climate is not an issue, there's many other issues of things that accumulate, plastic, mm -hmm. PFA, uh, forever chemicals, yeah. um, deforestation, extinctions, depleting aquifers. And to some extent, we can, uh, depleting aquifers, we can, with enough energy, we can desalinate. And a lot of things we, need to get, we can fix in some right. ways. But if they all happen around the same time, 
suddenly we have everything we need, all this energy at once. And you, you also said, I think the first time we spoke, I asked you write about the problems with renewables, so-called renewable, I can't say it, so-called renewables, so-called green, so-called clean, uh, which I'm relying on. Yeah. Uh, but, and you said you don't write about the other things because plenty of other people do. Yeah. But what I came away wondering is, do you not look them up and not know them? <laughs> or do you dismiss them in some way that I haven't seen? Because yeah. Uh, yeah. here's the way it looks to me. And I, uh, I'm going to pontificate here a bit. Is It seems to me that there's a lot of people looking forward right now and saying, uh, fossil uh, hydrocarbons aren't going to work. They have all sorts of problems. Mm -hmm. And you know, I, we all know what this, many of those criticisms are. And so they say, we got to go renewable. And so they go wind, water, solar, things like that. Then there's a lot of people say, wind, water, solar, that doesn't work. And even if it could, we can't ramp up in, ramp up in time. There's market-based solutions uh, and in human ingenuity to solve these things. And so one group, and, and it seems to me both criticize the other, neither accepts the criticism from the other. And from my perspective, both criticisms seem accurate. Both don't work. And I feel like a lot of people feel like, well, we're, we're fucked if that happens. Now, a lot of people, there, there seems to be many in both camps that agree, well, nuclear could work. Let's, you know, it's, it's low carbon. It's not zero, but it's lower carbon. At least that'll do something. And some will say, well, if we're really desperate, geoengineering. But the criticisms to all of them seem to me valid. I don't think we can rely on any of them. Well, so they, I would, let's first, I'll stipulate that the environmental issues are manifest across many domains, land use, water, pollution, actual toxins put in the air or not put in the air. Uh, disruption of ecosystems by both mining land use or choice of land use. There's a whole range of things. Almost everything is being uh, dragged away from that domain of environmental issues into just the CO2 issue. That's So most of what you finish up with is addressing the question of carbon dioxide emissions and therefore climate change, which is why I put it in the, in the append, not appendix, but in the epilogue. Uh, and I'm not dismissing it. It's a whole separate subject. I mean, whether climate change is accelerating or slowing, whether it will be extremely damaging or mildly damaging, has no bearing on whether or not we've invented a new class of bioelectronics. I mean, it, it brought in a sort of the sense of thinking about forecasting, but it surely does have a bearing in the sense of what governments choose to do, whether they impoverish economies or not. I mean, those kinds of things. So, but that's, a you know, the reason it's not there is because I chose not to write about the one monomaniacal issue that everybody is forcing all technology discussions to center on, which is CO2 effectively, or it's other gas, methane or you know, nitrogen oxides. So that, I mean, that's, from my viewpoint, a problem, mostly because I think you're right. Uh, and I'm not ignoring, and I am keenly aware of and read about the other issues are tend mm. to other technologies, particularly other energy sources. Uh, they're they're impossible to ignore. They're well documented. There aren't any real surprises. I mean, we've been burning in uh, hydrocarbons for a long time, certainly a couple centuries, uh, for in the century for the, the two dominant ones now, gas and oil. And we do it at incredible scale. So, and we regulate the hell out of it in the Western world. I mean, we really don't. Uh, we're not naive about most of the things, including, well, I would say all things, 
that uh, that are associated with the, act, the supply chain, so whole ecosystem upstream and downstream. You, we may disagree about how much more we should regulate or charge for it, but we, you know, there's no, there are no surprises because it's a mature system. I don't expect any surprises, even if you call climate change a quote surprise. It's not a surprise. We've been we've been talking about this. I've been reading about it, writing about it, debating it for thirty years. It's not. This is not a new. This is not a new discussion in the scientific community. It's sort of newer in the political community. The problem is, you're right. You're right in this sense that the criticism in both directions is correct. The criticism against the, the green solutions, so-called renewables, and you know, I call them so-called because the shortage is not an energy, as I, we talked about before. The shortage is the machines that are needed to extract nature's energy to make it useful to us all wear out. Since all machines wear out, nothing's renewable or everything is. It is the, it, you renew it by rebuilding machines. And so the the thing that matters the most is what are those machines? Where do they go? How much do they cost? What materials do I have to extract from Earth to make those machines? That's the thing that really matters. But the the renewable path that's being proposed doesn't materially reduce carbon dioxide emissions at the scales that are imagined. It just just demonstrably doesn't. And I think the data show it won't. Collaterally, those who are trying to find a solution to carbon dioxide emissions, they don't want to burn hydrocarbons, criticize all the solutions, quote, air quotes, right, that the oil, gas, and coal industries offer as being not acceptable because they won't solve the problem. Now, the one thing that would solve the problem would be if if CO2 emissions need to be, we have to stop emitting them, you could make a case that the only path for that that has any economic viability and it's demonstrably trackable is what we'll call tailpipe scrubbing, scrubbing CO2 at the point of creation when you combust, don't emit CO2. Not not talking about scavenging it from the planet and doing these elusive, frankly, fraudulent offsets. These are just, you know, planting a tree to offset all this all this fraud that goes on. It's intellectual fraud. It's also legal fraud to the extent some of these things are legal exchanges. So you could scrub CO2. I have to, I have to interject. I agree. Yeah. Right. You can scrub CO2. You know this. You can make bicarbonate of soda from CO2. You can do all it has a cost, but I would say if we were just being honest, you would get you could you could certainly get CO2 emissions reductions by building power plants and cars that scrub CO2. It's chemically knowable. We we know what the costs. And it's much more likely to achieve quote the goal if society wanted to spend that much money than the so-called wind, solar, battery path. But both are correct, and neither are affordable, and neither will solve the problem of eliminating society's CO2 emissions. So the, the thing that nobody wants to admit, it, well, not stop, nobody, that's generally not permitted in the, in the lexicon of discussions, is that you can't stop at the last COP27 conference, some writers are already writing, it, it, it was implicitly admitted that. I mean, energy security elevated to the dominant issue there. They redounded it to wealth transfer. We're going to pay reparations to the other countries for you know CO two we've admitted in the West, e- even though as we know statistically, China's consumption of coal in the last ten years is greater than the entire history of England's coal consumption since the Industrial Revolution. I mean, the CO two emissions from China in a decade have exceeded England's since the first coal was burned in a boiler, you know, in, in the seventeen hundreds. So that that disparity is sort of being acknowledged now and people are saying to your point we're asked what do we do the answer i i give and i've said i think i've said it before 
is one nobody likes, but it's the honest answer. You need to do two things. And the two things, broadly speaking, are patience to find materially different technologies, which only exist in the discovery of in basic sciences and very foundational engineering, like fusion or room temperature superconductor, magic catalysts. We need very different science, very different technologies that we're now deploying or, or can subsidize, which requires patience to arrive. And as Bill Gates, Bill Gates has a great line on this, for which there's no predictor function. Uh, in other words, we don't really know when it will happen. It might happen in a year, might happen in a century. That's very unsatisfactory. And since that's unsatisfactory, the second thing one has to do is make sure we have sufficient money instead of squandering it on things that don't work for resilience. Because if CO2 emissions are going to rise and are going to, because these other things don't work on either side of this equation, and if that leads to uh, insults from nature that are worse than in the past, the solution to that is to protect ourselves. And so the, the committed environmentalists don't like that because it's capitulating. We have to stop it. This is sort of, a, for me, an infantile and immoral response to it because both solutions aren't going to stop it. We're not, going to, we're not going to be able to scrub all CO2 from combustion, which is not going to be able to afford it. The, the green solution is not going to eliminate hydrocarbon emissions or the use of hydrocarbons. So we ought to be adults and we ought to think about how we build in resilience into the systems. And we know a lot about building resilience in. It just it costs money as well. But and there, it, it doesn't require magic new technologies to build resilience into systems. And it's not, it's I would say it has it's it's a more morally satisfying path than pretending that there's a solution that doesn't exist. That's this is sort of where I find my, the greatest disconnect in these debates. And it's why you don't need, I don't need to write about bad practices in the oil and gas industry in other countries. You know, okay, I can write about that. The way to solve that is to drill more oil here where we, where we can monitor people more effectively rather than buy, you know, buying refined products from countries that don't have our environmental practices rather than saying abandon oil. Because we're not going to stop using oil. It's, just, it's really... It's um, again. I keep using the word infantile. It's an infantile uh, claim that we can do that. Yes, you can by impoverishing society, by banning behaviors, banning cars. Right? Those things are, you know, banning air flights. You can ban the use of uh, of new construction so you stop producing steel, which you can only make with metallurgical coal. There are no paths in the near future for not using metallurgical coal to make steel. So. Governments could say, I ban those things, right? I mean, governments can do whatever they want. I mean, I, I think that's, I, I don't like that personally. And I don't think it's sustainable because most, in most parts of the world, citizens won't put up with it, right? They, ultimately, that's what will happen. Governments will do what they're, well, they're banning. I just looked it up before we got, <laughs> 60 countries now, I think, is, are saying they're going to ban internal combustion engines by 2030, 2035. 12 U.S. states and 60 countries. Okay, I mean, God willing, it's not that far away. We're talking eight years. I'll take the bet. It's not going to happen. Those, those bans will be ignored. They'll be repealed. Uh, and if they're kept in place, the cost of internal combustion engine cars will soar because the used car market will just go off, off the charts because people there won't be enough electric cars uh, for people to buy as replacements for the cars that are being banned because we're because we know we're not mining enough copper and aluminum, never mind the other stuff. 
no one's opening the minds. No one's investing in it. And we there's no magic to opening the minds up faster than is possible, even if we started investing in them. So this you get this guru. Sorry to interrupt, but I agree with a lot of what you said. I the to say that we um to me, when you talk about technology as a solution, in my experience, technology is not good or bad. Technology augments the values of the people wielding it. And as long as our values are creating the system that we have now, if we keep feeding that system, we will keep getting the results that we are now. Yeah, sure. That means more depletion of aquifers, more sperm counts are down by half around the world. Yeah. And possibly, we don't know why, possibly because of all the endocrine disruptors that we're, we're putting out there, which has nothing to do with greenhouse gases. We could stop CO2 emissions completely yeah. and we might still flood the world with plastic. We're overfishing and all these other things, which yeah. Yeah. these are major problems. And if we keep driving the system, to me, it seems like we will inevitably accelerate those results. Now this, to me, yeah. you're saying there's one thing that people don't like, and that's your two solutions. Yeah. But you're taking for granted something that I don't take for granted, which is that if we cut back on, if we change our value, if we act on different values, which I would say is restore past values. Yeah. Because as I see it, we do not practice as a culture, do unto others as you would have them do unto you anymore. <laughs> and we don't practice live and let live. And we don't practice leave it better than you found it. Well, we're now going philosophical or theological, and I agree with you. Well, if we don't change, if we don't change the values, if we keep yeah, acting on the yeah. values we're acting on now, we'll keep getting the results we're getting now. And sure. if we change those values, though, I to me it, it seems wildly implausible, but not impossible, to act on a different set of values. And in that case, what you're saying about the impossibility of stopping uh, hydrocarbons, stopping using hydrocarbons today, hmm. and I want to be very careful and not create a false equivalence and it's going to be really easy to understand, to misunderstand what I'm about to say. But what you say sounds very similar to what people responded to abolitionists in the early 1800s in England. Yeah, yeah. And we did, I mean, people said, if we don't continue slavery, the empire will crumble. Well, you know, first, the analogy is important because it's used a lot. And when you read the history of the abolitionist movement, you'll find that that wasn't what people were, there were people saying what you just said, that's true. But there was an awful lot of, uh, discourse and writing about that not being true at the time. People very well recognized that that mm. was not the case. And if you read, the, and I have read some of it, the, the history of that debate, what, you'll, what we'll find is that we, we have a caricature of it today to mm. use it as our analogy. There's a lot. So let, let me stipulate first, I'm not on the same page as you as worried about some of the crises that are, because there's so many of the crises that have been uh, claimed to be crises over the last 30 to 40 years, never mind 100 years, have evaporated as crises. They weren't really real. They weren't true. Or they were hypertrophied. doesn't mean there are crises. It doesn't mean that we, you know, we have, for example, polluted waterways with uh, with too much fertilizer or with, with animal waste from, from how we managed cattle. All those things are true uh, and have happened. I'm less worried about solving those problems because they, they're they very specific and amenable to by comparison to the things we're talking about, relatively easy fixes. The bigger problem in the philosophical sense is that I agree with you. If we if you want people to consume less and have a smaller footprint, because consuming less, smaller houses, different kind of diets, the kinds of vacations, all the different behavioral things that human nature is involved with, especially in the rich West, you know, Europe and the United States, 
then that requires attitude changes. I agree. And it requires culture change. It requires a recognition of how, you know, not just how we think about our neighbors and do unto others, but broadly how we think about other people who don't have what we have. And this is, again, where, where I get off the wagon that if we should, we could have a cultural revolution in the, in the West, the billion people, we've talked about this before, could all decide to live very different lives and choose to have a lower footprint by virtue of living very different lives, stipulating that technology can't move as fast as behaviors could change. And we know that because if you make prices high enough, you get behavioral changes. So you can get behavioral changes by voluntarily or involuntarily. And we reduce our energy use control. Well, it won't. Right, well, hold on. Before I, you, uh, I'm going to cut you off because because I, I know what you're about to say because you said it before. Yeah. But I'm not talking about a one-time change. I'm talking about a process of continual improvement. I, I agree. That would sustain. Yeah. Yeah. So it, we wouldn't do one thing and stop. I I got you. I, got you. I, I I get that. So we have we have another six billion people in the world who we have to convince to have this process of change. Mm -hmm. Right. So in, in there's two ways to look at the process of change, cultural change. Uh, of the one billion in the West that have we have our own ethos, this is all very similar culturally, and more, we're more similar. That, if you like, the, the billion that live in a wealthy lifestyle are, are more similar culturally than we are to the six billion who don't live like us. I mean, they're all we're all human beings. We have the same, I think, desires for children and some freedoms, but but our cultures are very different because of the kind of society we live in. I don't think it's remotely realistic. And again, this is where, where the sort of the engineering and physics comes in to believe that there's any prospect given the stretch of what we know about human history, that we're going to change the behavior of six billion people and bend it in a direction that let's say the billion the billion want, that we we decide democratically, are, are we billion to live a very different, have a very different path, an iterative path, how we raise our children, what we teach them. The six billion. We got to convince them too. If the, my point I've said before, if those six billion just get the ten percent of our lifestyle, because what we're talking about is lifestyle that's that's consumptive, it consumes physical resources in the world, water and food and fuel and minerals. If they just rise to ten or fifteen percent of what we consider tolerable, it more than doubles. I mean, just arithmetically, the, the humanity's footprint on the earth, which means the only way we can get to that nirvana to reduce footprint, it's still going to be technology. And if there are side effects that we don't like, whatever they are, we have to mitigate them with, again, money and technology. We have to be able to invent technologies that are affordable, have enough money and wealth to use them. Otherwise, there are there is no other option. That's what humans have done for 10,000 years. We've improved our way of living because of technology and organizing ourselves in ways that allows it to happen, to allow it to flourish. So we have there's a there is a anti-growth movement now, as you know, that wants doesn't believe we should be monomaniacally pursuing economic growth, that it's not, not an acceptable way to live. So we could make the argument that people have enough shouldn't want more, which is mostly the billion in the West. But we can't, I don't think, morally make the argument the six billion shouldn't have economic growth. They just don't they don't have anything close to our lifestyle. So we we want to suppress economic growth globally as a superior lifestyle. We've got a lot of people to convince of that. It's, it's going to be, it's not only going to be hard, I dare say impossible. And, and, and it doesn't matter whether we think it should happen. I, I, it's, it, I don't, it's, it's in the fantasy land. It's not, it's not going to happen. 
which is why I keep coming back to, we're going to be burning a lot of hydrocarbons, using lots of water, growing lots of food. It would be really nice if we figured out how to do that with smaller, smaller footprint, which is what we've done for a thousand years. Uh, We should pick the pace up on that. It, It doesn't obviate the point you're making about the broader lifestyle issues of it. You know, we, we've been fighting wars since recorded pre pre history and all recorded history. I wish we didn't have wars. Uh, it, I think it's not realistic to believe that human beings in any I mean, the foreseeable future will find ways to go to war with each other. It's see whether it's wired into our DNA or not. It sure appears that way. Well. For technical reasons that that um, the listeners don't have to know about, but we we have to we're running out of time on this one. Uh, so I, I thank you for sharing that, and I hope that I'm not sure we'll, if we'll do more recorded episodes together, but I would love to keep the conversation going because sure. I think that uh, there's a lot of things that you were taking for granted are absolutely impossible and against human nature that I think are um, long shots. Yeah, but much better bets in my book than to keep relying on hydrocarbons. Well, and I think I think you might be surprised at some of the things. Well, I agree with you on that. I mean, on long shots, long shots are by definition long term. And and short, well, I think I'm thinking short term too. Well, so let's just stipulate one good long shot would be one of the there's six dozen different designs for nuclear power plants now. This is by the IAEA, new new kinds of nuclear power plants. 70, 70 different types of new nuclear power plants, all of which are probably technically viable, many of which may be economically viable. I mean, is this, this, we've learned a lot about nuclear energy and engineering in the last 40, 50 years. To go from, to, to if, if we could imagine converting all the world's electricity to, to nuclear, it's not crazy, but it's not, there's no path to make that happen in a decade or two decades. It's gonna take a long time. Even if we put the pedal to the metal, but if we want to put the pedal of the metal, I'd rather see that happen. Much better long shot uh, than what we're doing with the solar, wind, and batteries. There's no comparison. The, you know, the idea of a, a kilowatt-class nuclear reactor is not fictional. They exist. And NASA's built them for, for the moon Submarine and Mars missions. Kilowatt-class. Home, home-sized nuclear power plant. A power plant that has electricity output for a home. For, you know, building-sized nuclear power plants, you know, 100 kilowatt already exist. Army built them in 1957. It's not like we don't know how to build these things. We just don't know how to build them economically and, and, and obviously collaterally safely. So those long shots are real, but no, no one is. It's genuinely a long shot to accelerate that. Fusion's an even longer long shot. We, we still haven't got the break even. So who knows when that happens? Uh, and you, don't, you, can't, you can't make it happen faster just by throwing money at it anymore. The old adage, you can't. But, you know, you can't, nine women can have a baby in one month. It's, this is true in engineering, just like it is in biology. You can't, some things you can't accelerate. You have to actually build it, test it. How did it work? Build a better one. That's really common in engineering. Mythical man month. Yeah, it's just it's the way, it's the way the world actually works. But I, I agree. I think we agree completely that the importance of uh, behavior, which is sort of my politics, the pol- getting the politics matters. But that's, let's put it differently. Getting the culture right matters a lot for all kinds of reasons. And we can do a lot better in terms of our footprint and our, it, for cultural reasons. It's hard, but not impossible. I'm with you. I wish we spent more time on that kind of stuff. 
we're going to use a lot of hydrocarbons for a long time, but if you want to reduce it fast, we're going to, in any time frame that meaningful, we're going to have to chase long shots as opposed to silly shots, <laughs> which is what we're doing. We're wasting money on silly stuff. It's and money's precious because money is a reflection of time, and time is time is irreplaceable, except in science fiction. <laughs> and also on this call, I think we have to wrap up there. <laughs> and uh, yeah, once again, thank you very much. Yeah, <laughs> thanks for having me back. <laughs> All these times. <laughs> How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy community and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.